whether you're watching online or streaming later, we're glad you're here. Whether you're in the auditorium here, we're glad you're part of this worship experience that we have as a corporate body of Christ. Perhaps you remember the jaywalking that Jay Leno used to do where he would go on the street and have pictures of politicians or questions of the day and it would reveal how little Americans know about their current or past history. Uh, Jesse Waters and Caleb Bonham have been two newer uh, guys that have gone on the street, so to speak, to do these interviews. And at one level, it's, it's fun, it's silly. At another level, it shows how little, how poorly Americans have any concept of their history. And we can blame that on a lot of factors from uh, boring history teachers to poor students who didn't listen well and on and on and on. And those diagnostics may be important for some other time. Uh, It strikes me, however, if we're poor on our Western civilization history, our world history, are we equally as impoverished on our spiritual history. It's not just a matter of knowing dates and times and kings of Persia and Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the law and exilic dates, pre-exilic and post-exilic. It's not so much the dates and times and geography, but do we understand our salvation history? Do we understand that uh, as Adam fell, and God revealed himself in the provision and the work of Christ at that experience. And that all through the salvation history of our Old and New Testaments, we are seeing a legacy that is handed from fallen man to fallen man to fallen man to fallen man, that our hope is in Christ and the work of salvation from eternity past that God planned. Uh, It's important not just to know that history, but it's also important to know your history salvation history. You and I need to see this as a continuum from when Adam fell, as we all did, and how that legacy is then transferred and changed to these fallen, broken conditions that we're in to a Savior. And that is one of the many reasons it's important to know not only a little bit of our biblical history, but our spiritual history, how we're related and how we're part of this long series of events. He wants to use us for his kingdom, for his purposes, for his uh, plan, not just merely for our lives to be a little better. We think about it in terms, let's say, of being a teenager. How many of you are currently raising teenagers? Real high. Okay. How many of you uh, had teenagers in your home, but they're gone? They're grown and left now. How many of you have grandchildren? How many grandchildren in the room? You know that grandchildren are God's rewards for not killing your teenagers? How many of you don't have teens in the house yet? Maybe one day you will. Okay, so we have the spectrum. How many remember being a teen? Okay, all right. So not picking on teens, but just illustratively. Teenagers, if we could distill it, we'd say what? They're very self-absorbed. It's all about them. And they'll spend inordinate times in front of the mirror, inordinate times on social media, inordinate times on Snapchat, inordinate times taking selfies, inordinate times, I mean, it's all about them how they look, how they feel, uh, what, what does it mean to be popular, who, who's, who are the right people to hang out with, the wrong, it's, it's a very self-absorbed, self-focused time. We agree on this, okay? And once in a while, you'll meet a teen, young man or woman, and they'll be conscientious. They'll speak clearly to an adult. <laughs> they might have a firm handshake. They might like working in the learning center with young kids. 
They might be responsible. They might be polite to their siblings. And when we meet a teenager like that, what do we say? My, you're so mature for your age. Because during adolescence, we don't expect them to possess those characteristics and qualities of of processing at this point. Can we look at our spiritual lives as childhood and adolescence and maturity? And when we come to Christ, and those are, for many of us, very profound experiences, and we, we're, we're shocked and we're changed and we're, we're new creatures and it's exciting, or, or some continuum therein, but it pretty much is about me when I first come to Christ. That he loves me, that he forgives me of sin, that he cares about me, that there's this new relationship I have with him. And it's a pretty self-focused thing. What is Christ doing for me? Will he answer my prayers? Will he meet my needs? Find my husband, my, my wife? Um, will, will I get through infertility and have children? Will I get the job I want? What if I go through a divorce? Will he love me? And we, we are, is it fair to say we're somewhat self-focused in this arrangement? Is it unfair to say that's spiritual adolescence? And it's somewhere we're maturing to see how God might use us not just for a self-preoccupation and checking off the boxes, the things that I want, but how he's going to use me in other people's lives. What's my destiny? What's my ministry? What's my purpose beyond just checking a box that I'm saved and everything's cool and copacetic when I die, I go to heaven? When we study a book like Ezra, we're asking people to think a little bit differently. We're asking you, we're asking the believing community to think a little bit more critically about these books of the Bible that are not some old historical stuffy thing. But I would argue in these two chapters that we'll look at today and next week, this is the maturing phase of how is God using you in the story of salvation history. Derek Kidner gives us some great landscape on these two chapters. Listen to Derek Kidner. Now at last we meet the man from whom the whole book has taken its name. He's introduced as the scholar-priest Ezra, his task and his expedition. The remaining two chapters will show the moral disarray that he encountered in Jerusalem and the unsparing countermeasures that he applied Much of the account is a personal record using the I and the we of direct speech. He continues, Ezra is a model reformer in that what he taught, he first lived. And what he lived, he first made sure of in the scripture. What he taught, he lived. It was internal, something he knew first before he went telling other people about it. Very interesting progression that Kidner notices. Listen again. What what he taught, he first lived. What he lived, he first made sure of in the Scriptures. With study, conduct, and teaching, put deliberately in the right order, each of these was able to function properly as at its best. Study was saving up from uncertainty. Conduct excuse me, study from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. Study, conduct, and teaching put in that order. We cannot teach what we do not know. So he is a priest who studies this, who knows it, he lives it out, and then he's going to teach it to others. Now we've got a copy in Ezra chapter 7 verse 11 of another letter. 
And this is a letter from Artaxerxes. And so we're going to read part of that, read that letter. And then from verse 27 on, we will be back in Hebrew Old Testament. This will be Aramaic, translated in our Bibles in English, obviously. But so we have a copy of a letter from Artaxerxes that he wrote to Ezra to take on his journey back. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 11 to begin. Ezra 7, verse 11. Now, this is a copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, lear, scribe learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. So right away, we've got another one of these inserted in the record of Ezra. Now, this introduction is going to be personal. It's going to be the king has granted this letter to an individual. This isn't written to a broad spectrum. And as Kidner pointed out, the I and the we language is very prominent in this letter. Um, we don't know precisely what motivates Artaxerxes to write this. And commentators and scholars debate and argue it endlessly. But it, there's an inkling of an idea that Ezra, we, we would call them talking points. Perhaps Ezra gave Artaxerxes some bullets, some talking points. And said, these are the kind of things that would help in this letter. Perhaps. We just don't know. But we're going to look at perhaps the motivations and why he does these things. Now look at verses 13 to 20, and 12 to 20, and we'll look at the extraordinary, the lavish blessings that God is going to give them through this Persian king, Artaxerxes. Verse 12 of Ezra 7. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Perfect peace. And now... I've issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and gold which, is, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem." With all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offering and their drink offerings and offer them to on the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem." Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do accordingly to the will of your God. Also, the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs of the house of your God, for which you must have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently. We've got this lavish endorsement, this extravagant set of gifting from gold and silver to animals. He, we might say he's giving him a blank check 
to go from Babylon captivity back to Jerusalem to reestablish worship. Now, Lloyd rightly commented about the second Moses last weekend. If you didn't hear that message, I would highly encourage you to go online and listen to it or watch it. Uh, the second Moses parallels are striking. Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and Moses will deliver them out of slavery. The theology behind Egypt is what? It is redemption from slavery, buying them out of slavery, consecration to worship. It's not just getting them out of jail. It's redemption from slavery, but consecrating them to worship. That was a much longer experience with probably 1.2 million people. Now we're fast forwarding to a remnant after the tabernacle was a portable thing in Moses' time when the cloud moved, the tabernacle moved. Now we've got a permanent one that Solomon built that's in disrepair. And that has to be rebuilt. So they've been in Babylonian captivity. Now this remnant is coming out under Ezra, parallel to Moses. He's going to move them out to go back to restore worship, which would, of course, been in the temple that Solomon had constructed. The costs are lavish. I won't detail them all, and we have to be careful when we do this. But when you compare some of these into modern uh, measurements and modern dollars, they're quite staggering. The one I will point out is the 100 talents of silver. Some estimate that would be about three and three quarters ton, tons of silver. And if you take $17.10 an ounce, which is what silver is last time I checked, it'd be about $1.8 billion in modern day, in our currency of silver. That's just one of the things. So what we're seeing is this lavish move on Adderxerxes' part to underwrite all now, why would Artaxerxes do this? If you look at verses 21 to 26, we have a couple of hints in here where he issues the decree, the, 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 the phrase beyond the river, beyond the river is, even though it's beyond our physical jurisdiction, they're still in our jurisdiction. But notice he says in verse 21, the scribe of the law of God of heaven may require of you, it shall be done diligently. Why is he concerned about that? Keep reading, verse 23. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. And that's an implication back to how he started the letter in verse 2, the king of kings. He's talking about his own kingdom. So you're going to reestablish this worship system. And the Persians had this thing. One, they did not like to be spoken ill of by their former captives. We might say they had a thin skin. They liked their PR. So when they released them to go home, they didn't want them to speak ill of it. But they also understand that while the Persians have their gods and their idolatry, Israel has, in their view, their god. And they want there to be not a remilitarization of this and coming back to fight Persia, but at some point to say, wow, they were really generous when we left captivity. Uh, we, we don't have any reason or right to go back and fight them or be hostile toward them, but we want to uh, cooperate with their jurisdiction. Perhaps that's what's going on here. We get some insight on his concern that he expects Ezra to strictly enforce the law. As we continue, we'll read, uh, verse 25, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even those who know the laws of your God. And you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God 
and the law of the king, that's a reference to him, let judgment be executed on him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. In other words, Ezra, when you go back, teach people the law of your God and any jurisdictional matters that Persia has, you teach them about that too. And if they commit a capital offense, you can carry out capital punishment. If they steal, you can confiscate what they've stolen. So it's, it's, it's so over the top. We have to ask why in the world would Artaxerxes write such a document to completely, a blank check politically, materially. If there's some left over, use it as you see fit. It's a very lavish gift that this king has given. Um, Ezra's comments in verses 27 to 29 reintroduce Ezra is now writing, and from here to chapter 9, Ezra will be writing. We read verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now Ezra's blessing here, um, we're back to Hebrew, but um, you probably know the word doxology. If you know the reference, the old 100th, you are really um, a small few today. But if you came from a church background, well, you know the old 100th, you know what a doxology is. Uh, It's a Greek word, uh, doxologia, a doxa meaning glory, logia meaning words. So when you sing the doxology, it's what? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's a vertical praise. Praise him, all creatures here below. It's a great, it's a great compact hymn that's vertical in nature. I'm arguing that this is Ezra's doxology. Obviously not Greek word in the Old Testament, but this is what he's doing because he blesses God, and I want to show you three terms in this in these two verses. The first one, where he blesses God. Now, when you think of blessing, it's one of those Bible words that means everything, therefore it means nothing. Um, If we study it a little bit, we know that a superior can bless an inferior. A king can bless his servants. A father can bless his son, so forth and so on. Someone who has superior authority, power, whatever, that can bless someone lower than him or her, we might say. But in this use, Ezra's blessing God. The word used here uh, is the word for knee. Bless at its root is the word knee. So then we get the meanings, implication, kneeling. So when man blesses God, he is kneeling, he's worshiping God. We're not bestowing a blessing like a father would on a child or a grandfather and a grandson. We're worshiping God. Ezra, verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this in the king's heart. It's worship. When he is the final recipient of that letter, even if he wrote the talking points, he's, he's reading it and he's blown away with this blank check materially, all the resources they're going to need to go back and to reinstate worship and even execute the laws of God the way your God intended and under Persian jurisdiction. It's a gratitude. It's speaking words of excellence. It's blessing God for who he is and for what he's done. Ezra blesses God. And I love the phrase where he says, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. This was a work of God to have a captive 
uh, the, the, the captive king from Darius to Xerxes to give this endorsement for them to go back home. Nebuchadnezzar had done the opposite. He'd plundered everything and taken it to Babylon. Now they're releasing it all and sending them back home so they can reinstate worship. And Ezra attributes this to God who put such a thing in the king's heart. I wonder if he was aware of what Solomon had written in Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I pray that prayer a lot for our country and for our world leaders, that God would move those men, and in some cases powerful women, he would take their heart like a channel of water and just move it and change it. Ezra blesses God for it because he knows it wasn't politics, it wasn't election cycles, it wasn't anything man did. God did this work and he blesses God for it. Notice he also attributes it to the God of our fathers in verse 27. That's the connection to the patriarchs. That's back from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's back to Moses. It's back to the Davidic writings which they would have at their disposal. It's Solomon who built the temple complex. He's reminding Israel, we're, we're a long line of legacy here. It's not just about us. We come from a God that made promises to our fathers and our forefathers. And that segues into the second realization in his doxology where he says, he acknowledges, verse 28, God has extended loving kindness to me before the king. Loving kindness, I've argued many times, in my humble opinion, it's the most important word in your Old Testament. If you use an ESV, it's always rendered steadfast love. If you use a New American Standard Bible, which we teach from, it's always, always rendered loving kindness. If you use other Bibles, they will change it to love, mercy, kindness, justice. It's a little harder to track down. One of the many reasons I like what a formal equivalent Bible. So I know every time that word shows up, it's rendered the same way. Loving kindness is a big word, but to simplify it, it means two main things. God loves to be loyal. He's loyal and not like a dog is loyal to an owner, but he's loyal in his character. He loves to be loyal to two things, his word and his people. A little more technically, he loves to be loyal to his covenant promises and his chosen people. God's nature is he loves to be loyal to the promises he made, his covenant promises, and he loves to be loyal to his chosen people. We think of love as this, uh, ooh, uh, this swirling camera spinning around nonsense. We think of love that way or falling in, in love, I'm not in love anymore. We have to erase that concept of love. This is an ethical love. It's a sovereign love. God's character is his loyalty. If he says something, you can stake your soul on it. God loves to be loyal to his covenant promises. So we use the cliche, once saved, always saved. Is that because we're better people? We have a better sense of we know how to keep our salvation? No, it's because we're trusting in Christ to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. If Christ took care of all of your sins, what are you going to do to take care of your sins? You're going to embrace a gift. So we're trusting in a covenant promise, and we're trusting that he loves his chosen people. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He called you to himself. You responded by faith. I would argue he even gave you and me the faith to respond to him. That's how much his loving kindness is. And did you catch it here? He didn't say to Israel, notice he says, extended loving kindness to me. It's a very personal insight on Ezra the scholar-priest. 
I'm looking at what's happening. I'm blown away. Bless God that you moved in the king's heart and you've extended loving kindness to me. I saw the fulfillment of your promise. I'm part of your chosen people's lineage. Through the Father's legacy, you chose me to be used in this equation. The third one is, I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. So we've got three things. He's blessing God. He's acknowledging the extension of loving kindness to him. And finally, that God's hand was on him and this strengthens him. We've mentioned this before. I've encouraged you to circle it in your Bible every time you read the word hand in Ezra. And there's a prominent theme that the hand of the Lord, chapter 7, verse 6, verse 9, verse 28, chapter 18, it, eight, it occurs three more times. He recounts what's transpired. So this doxologia, he's saying, I'm blessing God. It couldn't have happened apart from God's loving kindness to me. And now his hand is upon me, strengthening me, the hand of the Lord. Ezra's task is going to be very difficult. This is not, it's going to be easy capizzy from now on. He's going to gather, them, gather leaders, but his four-plus-month journey back and the rebuilding of the temple is no small accomplishment. This is like getting the building permit, now we've got all the work to do. He's seeing God and what God has done and recalling that, but it's not going to be downhill. It's going to be uphill from here on out. But at this point, he blesses God. He acknowledges this chesed loving kindness to him, and he sees God's hand strengthening him. My uh, father passed away about four years ago, but um, I had written a tribute to my parents back on their 50th wedding anniversary many years ago. And um, each of my siblings, we wrote these tributes. And I picked the imagery of my father's hand. My dad's hand, I can still see it in my mind's eye as a little boy. Uh, holding a hammer. You hold a hammer up near the head of the hammer, and Dad would say, no, you hold the hammer down here. And you have a paintbrush, you hold it by the handle. No, a paintbrush you hold up by the bristles. And all the things he taught me with his hand, from wrenches and painting and under cars and saws and everything, he always, I, I can see his hands on my hand teaching me. Uh, my father taught my brother, older sister, and me. He taught us to work hard, to take initiative, to get your hands dirty, to be the one that gets there and is not afraid to learn and ask questions and to look somebody in the eye and give them a firm handshake and to speak clearly. My dad had all these sayings that drove me nuts. By the inches of cinch, by the yard it's hard. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. By perseverance, even the snail made it to the ark. Turn the light off when you leave the room. That one still warms my heart. Um, I hated those sayings growing up, and now I bequeath them on my children as my legacy. Turn the light off when you leave the room. My dad's fingerprints are all over me. Now, as many of us in this room, you as a child adore and worship and copy and want to be like your dad, and then somewhere in there it changes not so well, and maybe you hate your father. And you're angry at him for decades. Want nothing to do with him. Don't want to be associated with the man. Somewhere in your late 20s, 30s, you start to change your perspective a little bit. And, you, you know, he didn't do so bad. Mark Twain's old comment about when he was 17, he could barely stand to have the old man around. When he turned 21, he was surprised how much he'd learned in his absence. And then you get a little older and you start to see great compassion. 
I have a long story, very short. I call it my grumpy old men weekend. I went up to Ford City, Pennsylvania and saw my father and his two older brothers from my dad's 50th high school reunion. And um, in those 48 hours I was with them, I got a 10-year education on understanding who my dad was in light of the impoverished world in which they lived and what they accomplished. And I grew in great respect for my father and buried him at 88. Now, I could talk about all the bad things Dad did, and any parent in this room has... Hi, my name's Michael. I'm a horrible father. Let's just start out that way, okay? <laughs> we all had to begin. No matter how good you are, you're a horrible parent. But you go through this process, and I see that those fingerprints, and I choose to remember the good, not dwell on the bad, which I, again, submit is part of growing up. You see, if you stay an adolescent, you're going to hate your dad all your life. Because it's all about me. But if you're growing maturity in your life, your human life, you're going to respect and appreciate and maybe even learn to love the man. If you had a great dad, bless you. Fantastic for you. Not all of us had that. How much more spiritually? Ezra's talking about God's hand. Ezra is praising God for his goodness and seeing that God's hand is on him to do a thing. Ezra's praising God for his goodness, and he sees God's hand on him to do a thing. For you and me, do you know your spiritual history so that you can understand your spiritual destiny? If you don't understand your spiritual history, you will not understand your purpose in what God wants to do with you in a destiny. And I'm using destiny carefully here. But if, if you understand your history spiritually, would it not make sense? Maturity is not staying in adolescence, but understanding my spiritual destiny. I'm moving from adolescence to maturity. I'm growing. And I see God's hand in my life. Do you see God's hand in your life? And if it's only about me, my health, my prosperity, prosperity, my bigger, better, newer, more, my children growing up and being fine contributing citizens and marrying Christian uh, spouses, uh, my grandchildren, uh, my retirement plan, uh, my, 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 if that's all it is, can I lovingly but gently rebuff you and say you're an adolescent spiritually? We talk about giving our lives away as one of fellowship's values. Do you know your spiritual history well enough to live your spiritual destiny? Three things to think on as you leave today. One, you and I need a long view. We need a long view of this. Ezra has been given a commission right now. It's going to be a long road, and it's not always going to go well. And one of the downsides of technology and instantaneous gratification that we all love so much is that we've lost a patient long view of things. How many of us get so frustrated if our internet gets slow? I mean, our blood pressure goes up. We're calling support. We're complaining to the tech. My internet's slow, and we're dying a thousand deaths. Do you remember modems? You remember dial-up? You remember we had one floppy with one side on it with a green CRT? You see, we forget so quickly. We got to have the newest iPhone because it's so much faster than the last one. 
Yeah, it's faster than some benchmark. Can you experientially tell us? But you tell you, oh, it's so much faster. It's so much faster. We say that. We're just lying. <laughs> it's not that fast. It was faster. A microwave. How many of us impatiently wait for the microwave? I have a daughter who I won't name. It's one of three, so it's a good guess. I have a daughter who, when she sets it for 12 seconds or 15, she always cuts it off before it hits the end. And so when I see four seconds on, I, I know who used the microwave. They're too impatient to let it finish. I don't, it's done. It's good. We're such impatient people. I need a long view. God's not in a hurry. One of my greatest pictures of God, I don't mean that weirdly, but just God is not pacing heaven's floor, wringing his hands over the way things are going. That's more a statement of me than God. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how I view life. I may not physically be pacing heaven, the floor, but mentally, my brain never stops. It goes the moment I wake up to the moment I lay the head. My, it never stops all the things I've got to do. I'm worried about my kids, all, all health, all the things, that you can, people that I love, all the stuff. You're probably the same way, many of you. It just never stops. He's sovereign. He's extended loving kindness to you. He's bigger than Ebola or the government or the pay scale or the elections coming up. He's bigger. And we get focused on the now on the here term. I'm as frustrated as many of you, probably more frustrated than some of you about our country and the world. And I want to just dope slap these people. And don't you have any common sense? <laughs> Wake up, you idiots. Come on. I can pace the floor metaphorically worrying about that. You know, a really good recalibration is kneeling. I'm just a lowly human being that he loves, and it's not my job. My job is what? Adolescence? Adulthood. Long view. Secondly, and we need frequent reminders of his loving kindness. We need frequent reminders, frequent reminders of his loving kindness. We forget God's word to his people is immutable, unchangeable, infallible, inerrant. If you've trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you trust him to save you when you die, and you and I don't trust him in between now and then. I still argue that's backwards. We should trust him for the little things of life and wonder if he's really going to come through in the end with the big thing. But we're inoculated with this concept of eternal security, which I believe the Scripture teaches, but we don't trust Him in between. And I would encourage us as a growing body that we focus on God's loving kindness. What has He done for you? Have you reviewed your salvation history? Do you remember what He has accomplished? And, and last, look for God's hand in your life. This one's very subjective, and I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but look for God's hand in your life. What's he done in your life? What's he doing in your life? It would make sense, common sense, that if you've been through these experiences in your life and you're at a place of maturity or maturing, what is he doing in your life? And how do you live now as a result of those experiences and what you've learned? And if it's not becoming more about other people, I'm going to nudge you kindly and gently, you're probably still a teenager spiritually. He studied the law 
He knew it. He lived it before he taught it. That's a mature person. And the older we become, the more we should be the ones that are teaching and encouraging others and less about me and more about them. Oh, it's hard to die to self. I'm not telling you I've got it licked and I'm not selfish when I wake up every morning. It's still, will I serve myself or will I serve my Savior every time I get out of bed? But I like that question popping into my head because it's that one chance of the day, okay, Lord, as my feet hit the floor, is this a little bit more about you than about me today? We all have imperceptible influence. We were sitting at dinner last night with some dear friends talking about this notion. I call it imperceptible influence. You have no idea how God's using you, and you may never. The way we think he's using us may completely be amiss. But the way he is using you, we might not know to glory. Here's the cool part. He's just asked us to be faithful, not successful. He just asked us to be faithful with what he's given us. And as you and I are faithful, I have confidence, not because Michael's some great Christian guy, I have confidence in my God that if I'm faithful, I'm more likely to be used by his hand than if I'm unfaithful or living in sin or it's all about me. That's spiritual maturity. Bless him. Long view. Remember his loving kindness. Review it. Remember the old hymn, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. Old ditty of a hymn. Great, great practical application. Have you counted them and listed what he's done? And when you don't, you forget what has brought you thus far. And look to see how he's using you. Ezra blesses God for his goodness and thanks him that his hand is upon him to do a task. Do you think you're any different than that? Here's the deal. I think he wants to use you. I don't know if you believe that. I'm convinced he wants to use every one of us in this room in ways we may not always perceive. And that's growing and being a mature person who's studying it, who's living it out before we try to tell others what to do and how to think. Father, we thank you for our spiritual legacy. We thank you for, from Adam's fall until this very day, you made a provision in the personal work of Christ. We thank you that you love us, that you care about us, that nothing we can ever do can change your love for us, and nothing we have ever done would prevent you from loving. We need to marvel at your loving kindness. We need to bless you and thank you and worship you for all you've done. Give us a long view, knowing we have all the resources we need to live out this life that you have given. We need your help, and thank you that you do. In Christ's name, amen.